Okay, I think we fixed all the technical difficulties, I think. And and so, uh, once again, the podcasts are indeed a pain in the ass to work with. Uh, but but we're I think we're moving forward. I've got we've got the Skyperoo going and this it's being recorded. I've got uh, Diego and Joey uh, on the phone and uh, they were both I hung out with them both down in San Diego uh, last March. So what would that be like a couple of months ago? Three and months ago. We did three months ago. Jeez, man, time travel. Uh, so. Uh, uh, we did a workshop, and then I was the keynote speaker at the Southern California Permaculture Convergence, and they all, it's like the place where we taught the workshop was like right next door to the Convergence, so that was convenient, um, And uh, um, but I guess, and then Joey took over the part where he's talking about what to plant, so now there, there was a video up on YouTube where... I think it was last September, I went to Joey's place. And Joey, do you have seven acres? Is that right? Oh, I wish. We have two and a half. Two and a half. Okay, two and a half acres. I, I So I went to your place, and we walked around for a while, and there was a guy there named Paul who was taller than me. That's right. And which is a rare thing. And, uh, uh, in fact, at the, at the Convergence, he was also wearing overalls. <laughs> yeah. So... Look for the tall guy in overalls that answers the Paul. That wouldn't have worked. That you know, you could get two different guys. Oh. Um, Both so, nice, uh, nice guys, so it's okay. Who, who are we talking about? Both of you are very nice, so that's that's okay if you both answer. <laughs> oh, you know, you you don't know me very well. <laughs> okay, so the key is is that he videoed me looking at your farm. And and uh, I, it seems like it was a half an hour. It got posted. It was up at YouTube for a while, and um, uh, so there's so then that uh, there's that experience with you. But you're down in that area, so you know the plants that grow in that area. And and then after I did the Earthworks workshop, then it's like okay, we need to plant this stuff right away. So then you led a workshop to plant all that stuff. That's right. And and it was that was mixed in with the um, the the convergence. How many how many people came out and did that with you? I think about sixty. Wow, wow! Talk about a blitz. Yeah, I, okay. we got a lot done. So, uh, uh, and then I know for a while we were trying to like try and set it up a podcast between you and me and Tall Paul before I left, but that didn't happen. So. Damn. Well, hey, we're going to try and make up for it now. All right. So instead, it's it's me and you and Diego. Um, now, for now, of course, uh, this this before we started, before we had the convergence, then for about two months before the convergence happened, I know that Diego and I had a lot of phone calls, and and pretty much we're talking about like let's do a conference. That's like really huge, like the biggest that permaculture has ever seen. And and lots of times when there's a convergence or a conference, um, so far it's been bringing in a lot of the locals, except for the international uh, conference, which this year is in Cuba. Yep. Um, and they usually seem to get like 150 people. That's what I've heard is like 150 people. 
and um, and so it's kind of like you know so so Diego and I kind of had this conversation of like you know what would be cool is like let's bring in all the bigs you know uh, so let's see if we can get Sepp Holzer Jeff Lawton um, uh, Alan Savory uh, uh, who's the the uh, I'm trying to think of Willie Smith. Um, so the greening the de- starting off with, we made a list we start off with a with a focus on the greening the desert guys who are the greening the desert guys let's get them there and um, uh, and then you know the ticket will be more expensive because you're you know you're bringing in these big big names who you know uh, are going to be flown in from far far away and on top of that it's like their time is extremely valuable etc. So and on t- and and then somehow Michael Pollan got roped in. And uh, so then uh, the idea was, is like, hopefully we'll be able to announce this at that convergence in March. But um, the website wasn't up yet. So uh, um, it didn't get announced until like a month ago. Um, but it's, it's, there's a big website. You can go buy tickets now. Um, Diego, is there like a list of what, what's going to be presented yet? No, I'm, I'm hoping to have all the speakers' exact topics decided by August 1st. Right now, it's pretty much still tying up a lot of the speakers. A lot of the speakers on the website are confirmed, but there's still some unannounced speakers that are in negotiations, if you will. So I need to get everybody finalized in terms of who will actually be speaking and then go back to all the speakers that are confirmed, and, and I have to, I'm going to have to do some massive mind mapping here to say what topics do I want covered, who can handle what topics, and then try and weave the whole prog- program together, which there's a lot of talented people, so a lot of these people can talk on a variety of topics. There's no real yeah. one-trick ponies here that are one permaculture topic. So it'll all be weaved through. There's going to be basically three tracks involved on the conference. So each talk will be slotted into one of the tracks. Okay. Um, so I, I just thought that with the the lineup of the big speakers, that that was pretty huge. I mean, so you've also got Jack Spierko. You've got Joel Salatin. Um, uh, maybe, I don't know, there are a few others... I mean, I thought Alan Savory was a big one, and of course Michael Pollan. Uh, I'm going to be a speaker. I'll be there, of course, because I, you know, help to, uh, uh, you know, kind of get it started here with at least, you know, phone conversations. You, of course, have been doing all the actual work. <laughs> oh. Yeah, I think the way it actually came about was I, you know, went to you with this idea, like, hey, I've had this idea for a while of doing this, and your response was basically, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, um, but it's really happening, and that's that's awesome. So it'll be next March, uh, March of 2014, and um, uh, and tickets have already been. People have been buying tickets already, and I'm I'm hoping that we'll see uh, 800 people, and yeah. um, and I and I like the idea of some of these bigs meeting each other that have never met each other before. Oh, Darren Doherty's coming, right? No, he was a no responder. So if Darren Doherty's listening, he could respond to one of the emails that he's been sent multiple times. Okay. All right. All right. Well, um, maybe try and reach him because uh, I know Owen Hablitzel's coming, and and maybe maybe uh, try and reach him through Owen. 
Um, all right. But uh, this this podcast, though, I mean, the thing is, is that at some point in time, because uh, I went and I gave the presentation last fall, um, and uh, we had 140 people there, uh, and it was down in, in the San Diego area. And then after that, you kept pestering me. Uh, you wanted to do a hookah culture workshop. And and it seems to me like my position on it was like a hookah culture workshop. I mean, that would be like 15 minutes. You know, it's soil on wood. <laughs> oh, nothing 15 minutes with you, Paul. <laughs> well, when I did the presentation on replacing irrigation with permaculture, it seems like we spent a good hour yeah. talking about just culture, yeah. which seems to be how that normally rolls. There you go. But um, the, so the key is, is that I think in the end it, it ended up being an Earthworks workshop. And, and that's what we're going to try to make the podcast about today is to, is to kind of recap that Earthworks workshop. Um, and uh, so what was – okay, so, so Diego, I think the best thing to do is to start off with what, what you had in mind and what you got lined out and then what was the mission? Well, really the mission, I, when you came down to speak in September, 140 people showed up for the replacing irrigation with permaculture talk. And, you know, from seeing that and then from talking to Joey as well, there was obvious demand down in Southern California for you. You know, people wanted to see more of it. Hugel culture was your big topic. So the initial thought was, yes, let's do a Hugel culture workshop. And it was maybe going to focus on let's build a big Hugel culture bed with kind of segmented sections in it, you know, one section's all palm, one section's all eucalyptus, one section's a, a motley crew of everything, and that evolved then into, a, okay, I would like to build some ponds, you said, so I went down the road of, okay, let's do an earthworks workshop, and started making some calls, and I knew of Alden, who hosted the workshop when it really happened, and I contacted him, and talked to him about it, and he said, yeah, whatever. Um, I have a blank slate. Go for it. Pretty much do whatever you want. From there, we just talked it out three days, and we decided, okay, a, we're going to build a pond. We're going to build a swale. We're going to build a hugel culture bed, and we're going to add a lot of texture to the landscape. Those were the goals going in, and we developed kind of a program around that, started the workshop, put it out there to the public. We got about 25 people that showed up for it. The farthest one was North Kakalaki and a lot of Southern California people. So it North, went pretty well. North Kakalaki? You mean North Carolina? Yeah, North Kakalaki. We, we, had, we had one couple that came from the Carolinas. They flew a long ways to come. Right. And he actually mm. signed up for the, the Permaculture Voices Conference, so he'll, we'll see him again. Joe. Awesome. Yeah. So um, uh, I, I remember when you sent me the very first pictures of the site that apparently the biggest concern was is that whenever it rains, then there's a river that forms going down the road – and then it turns into the little driveway for this place because it because this place is uh, this property is below the road, so the water goes down the road, 
and then it goes onto the property, this little river, and then this river just kind of cuts right through and makes a mess, and then it ends up going into this little creek all dirty and funky and nasty. Um, um, now, granted, it's muddy. It looks muddy. The pictures look, the water looks very muddy. But since it's going down a street, then one has to worry about what kind of toxic gick is the water picking up off of the street and then carrying in the water down to that creek. So the the initial concern that I remember was, ooh, we got all this icky water coming on, and and then it just goes into where the fish are, and surely that can't be good, and we should fix that. Plus, wouldn't it be nice if we had more water on our land? And it, and this particular piece of land, it did look kind of deserty. I mean, I've seen desertier, but it was kind of deserty. It was chaparral. Yeah, chaparral. I guess you would classify it as. It was definitely not lush looking. I mean, whatever was there was a native, drought tolerant thing. It, it was not a lot of summer greenery on that slope at all. Okay, so, you know, part of the mission was is to is to try to reduce the amount of water going from the road to the creek. And uh, all dirty-like. So let's see if we can clean the water and then use the water. Um, and uh, so, all right. That's the, so then all the things that you mentioned, let's, we're going we're gonna to go. We're going to do a laundry list of things. We're going to build a pond, the, the hugel culture, and a swale. Those, those are the dominant things that, that we want to accomplish with this Earthworks workshop. And right. most of the workshop is to try and decide, is to try and... And have people understand um, what is the decision-making process for where things go. How do you decide where to put the pond? How do you decide where to route water and and things of that nature? Um, and and so the 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 part that people wanted the most was the very beginning steps: how to figure out what where to put it, and then how do you actually make it happen? And and so. Um, that was that was the mission. Do we, have, do we have the mission clear now? Is it is that accurate? Yeah, no, definitely. And there's still some video up on the thread in the Permies forum showing it. And it's a couple hundred thousand gallons that can come down on one rainfall because, like you said, the property was downslope of a road and it was on a turn in the road. So you also captured at least two other driveways that would normally have flown down the driveway through a ditch uh, and straight into the creek, like you said. So it was the mission was to try and get a lot of that water to stay on the property. And conveniently, you know, where we harvested it was at a perfect point in the road, and it was at the highest part of the property where you want to harvest the water. Right, right. So, um, and and just the water flow itself was causing some problems. With the property, it was it was washing out some gravel. It looked like, um, and and I think it was, I think some people were getting a little spooked by that's a lot of water coming through where we're trying to drive, and and so it was a little a little spooky. And and so, all right, uh, then then people are signing up for the class. Time passes, and Neil Bertrando stops by, 
and has a look. Mm-hmm. And then he he uh, he tells me that oh that site that you're going to be doing that you're going to be working on you're going to be doing those earthworks. You're going to try and build a pond, but that's cracked bedrock there. I went and I looked at it, and it's cracked bedrock. And it's like, oh, no. If it's cracked bedrock, I have no idea how we would seal a pond other than, like, you know, with the, with the uh, horrific liner idea. And, of course, we're trying to teach how to seal a pond naturally without any liners. And it's kind of like, uh, uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh, what kind of challenges are we getting into here? How, how hard is this going to be? So I was very nervous about the workshop. And um, what I really wanted, when, when we talked about doing the workshop, the idea was the workshop's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And the idea is is that when I show up on Wednesday, I'll have never seen the property. I have no idea what I'm going to do. And then we're going to openly discuss what is to be done. And that's part of the workshop. Um, and instead, what we did is I came in two days early. And and so um, I came in on Monday, and on Monday, Alden, the guy who kind of manages this property, um, and how many acres was it? Seven, that, I believe. Seven, okay, all right, so this is where the seven acres is. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so when I, I came into the property, Alden had already dug two test pits. Um, in the general vicinity of where we might want to build ponds. And uh, sure enough, I saw the, the, the cracked bedrock, and, and it's like, oh, no, we're screwed. And then Alden showed me the two pits, and it's like, that looks like it's a lot of clay or silt, and clay or silt I can work with. Um, and it looks like these pits were pretty deep. He had dug them three or four feet deep, and it's like, okay, well, if we have enough of this stuff over the cracked bedrock, we're going to be fine. And and granted, there's this other place where there's cracked bedrock, and it's like clearly the soil's very thin on top of a lot of cracked bedrock. But I think, you know, I'm thinking all we got to do is have enough of this silty clayish material, and and we're going to be just fine. So I went away. I stopped looking. Because it's like I'm I'm comforted, and we'll we'll be all right. You know we're gonna. So then it came back on Wednesday, and it's the beginning of the class, and and I get there, and there's a big crowd there, and um, half of the people are very excited to see me, and the other half of the people have no idea who I am. <laughs> so the, I mean it was like half and half. Half of the people were like pod people. And the other half of the people were just coming for the Earthworks workshop and didn't care who was teaching it. So um, uh, we uh, we spent Wednesday uh, um, in the I think the first the, the the first couple of hours we spent in the classroom talking about um, you know just general intro Q and A about building ponds and the Earthworks and stuff like that. And um, then we handed out a bunch of maps. And so you and I had talked about how the class would be taught ahead of time. And the idea was that we'd give each person five maps. And the idea was is that they would then draw out a design, and their design would suck. And then I, I would tell them why their design sucked, and they would draw up a new design. And then after a few iterations, they would have 
a better and we would you know be able to share the designs and stuff like that and um, so this was our plan which I, I later decided was a really crappy plan I uh, I didn't like you it at all plans, what, that plan sucked that plan sucked oh, it, it was it was crap it was it was it was a festering pile of goo mm. so uh, uh, everybody did draw their plans and I sat with my piece of paper to draw my plan, and I kind of thought, this is stupid. And, and so uh, we, we left the plans behind, and we went up and looked at the site. And, and so basically, whenever I do a design, I start with, you know, I want to start with the highest point on the land. And in this particular case, it's like where the water came in. And it was, it was kind of like, this was kind of part of the given, is... Here is the point where the water comes in, and and it starts coming onto our driveway right off of the road, and so this is where the problem starts, and we want the problem to go away, and so it, it seemed pretty obvious that the thing to do was, let's first take this water in, and we need to start cleaning it, and and the thing that I'm most concerned about is is heavy metals. Because most other things can be broken down biologically. So different kinds of plants or different kinds of uh, composting or all kinds of different things will then take the, uh, the offending whatever it is and break it down into something useful. Um, but heavy metals are an element. Um, so, for example, lead. If, if lead comes into the system, we kind of don't want lead in our system. And so the first thing we want to do is to get rid of it. So when the water comes in, the first thing we need to do is slow it down. And the, and the best way to slow it down is a pond. So we wanted to have a pond that was really deep and really wide. So that way the, the water going through the pond would move extremely slowly. And by moving slowly, then a lot of the material will sink. And so then what comes out of the pond on the other side is going to be relatively clean. Um, and uh, then, you know, then uh, there's the next kind of cleaning that we want to do after that. So the pond is like we want the sinkers to sink. If we can throw a log across the top of the pond, then we're also going to capture any kind of floaties. Anything that's floating will we'll, we'll capture that. It'll just get hung up behind the log. Then the water that goes under the log and above the sinkers will then be cleaner. And that's what we want to have move on to the next phase of our system. So where we were standing, we kind of eyeballed out where we generally want to have this, this pond that's going to act as a big filter. And, um, and then it's like, okay, now we've still got particulate that's that's in our water and we want to get it out and one of the best ways is a biological filter so um what we decided to do drink it not yet okay. <laughs> <laughs> maybe joey maybe we could have put you there and then you could have just i would have been given you yeah i would have been the biological chair. filter we could have just yeah. caught it out the other end you would just drink it in mm -hmm. and pee it out yeah. drink it in pee it out. you would be the filter i wouldn't be yeah, we need, yeah. Need more of me. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm sure that you know, if we didn't, if we did a poor job of filtering it out, 
you would have gotten lots of calories with the different kinds of biological material that was still floating oh, in that water. You wouldn't even have to feed me anymore. Yeah. We could just, oh, just a lawn chair. Just put a lawn chair there big, and sit you there. Big hose. And yeah. Big straw. Ugh. Big straw. Yeah. Just just stick the straw into the pond. I, I'm game. I'll, I'll get okay. ready. So uh, um, the thing we decided to do was to um, uh, run a finger from the pond. And the, uh, a finger is going to look a lot like a swale. But the purpose, but the intent is to seal it instead of like a swale where the water builds up in the swale and then it just drains into the soil. It's not sealed. So um, we, we created a finger and then the idea is, is that you could say, oh, well, we could plant a bunch of stuff in it. And I said, ah, you don't need to bother because what's going to happen is, is that animals are going to find this cattails just show up. Um, you just build the pond, they'll be there. I, I have no idea how they get there. They, they probably stick, the cattail seeds probably stick to some sort of uh, ducks or something like that. The ducks come to the pond and now you've got cattails. That's my best guess. So, um, uh, But then the cattails and, and a variety of other plants would be inside of the finger on this pond and then that would be cleaner. We, we then came up with some other ideas on where we would go from there by talking with Alden and the other people in the class. Um, and uh, what we decided to do is to go ahead and, and get out a laser level and start mapping out where all this stuff would be. And uh, by this time, it's like we've forgotten all about our maps. And, and, um, uh, but, but one of the things that we did is that we would talk about, you know, what we need at the top. We needed that pond to be able to do the initial filtering, um, uh, basically a settling pond. And so there were no other ideas that were presented besides that. Um, and and then we started to transition into, um, uh, like, okay, where do we want? We want to do another filter. And the next filter is going to be this biological filter. And then um, the third and final filter was going to be something where we have water going across rocks and, and aerating the water. And, and that was, uh, um, so we decided that that would go into a, a second pond. And the second pond is where um, people can go in and get wet. Um, and it should be, you know, quite clean water. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we ended up on Wednesday. Did it leave anything out for Wednesday? No, that was the... pretty much the extent of it in terms of the workshop itself. We, we did shoot one contour line to get an idea of where the finger itself was going to go. And where the pond was going to go. Right, and we might have cleared out some brush. I can't remember how much of that we did on Wednesday versus Thursday. And one interesting tidbit that came up around the filtration, and I don't know if it was you that brought it up or somebody else, that frogs were an indicator species of clean water. So if you have frogs in the water, that was an indicator that your water was good. And I thought that right. was pretty cool because I'd never heard that before. Frogs are very sensitive to toxins. And and so if you've got a pond where there are frogs, then yes, that's an indicator that things are pretty clean. Now granted, you know, muddy is a, a form of clean. 
mm. to to frogs. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like if you've got some chemicals and stuff getting in there, frogs are extremely sensitive to a variety of different toxins. So you know, that's what we want to shoot. Now, one other thing we did on Wednesday was soil samples. We all got out our mason jars. I think I think part of the class everybody got a mason jar. And we went all over the property and picked out soil samples and we put them in water, shook them up really good, and then we set them set them aside and we labeled them, and we waited for them to settle out. And then later, uh, I think the next day, we went and looked at them all to see how much clay, silt, and sand there was and organic matter. So that was part of the class. In in, in general, I think they tested out somewhere in the fifteen percent range, and that seemed to be a common thread between you and Jacob Hatch, the pond contractor, that if you got at least 15% clay, you should be able to seal it with no problem without having to do other strategies such as importing clay, floating clay out of other soil, extra compaction, those types of things. Well, and and we should and Jacob of course I mean this is like his day job in the San Diego area, um, I I kind of felt like with a guy like Jacob there you guys didn't really need me to be there but it it did seem like Jacob also wanted to to take this class from me and and then uh, uh, there was a lot of people that came there to see me but Aww. but I really thought Jacob was good I okay so so Joey do you know Jacob. I don't know, Jacob. I don't know what kind of ponds he's building. Are they like landscape ponds? Yeah, it seems like he's he's very permaculture savvy. Hmm. He's he's very savvy to a lot of the plants that we like that non permaculture people don't like. Right. Um, and uh, uh, but but basically, um, he showed me. He brought me a book that was like uh, a portfolio of a bunch of the work that he's done before. Really beautiful stuff. So definitely, he definitely has a lot of pawn skills, and and it it seemed to me like he and I agreed on everything everywhere that we went. Oh, that was a good idea that he uh, on his part. Because <laughs> I'd shot him down. That's right. That's right. So, uh, but I I think we uh, uh, went back and forth a lot on a lot of different things, and it was kind of like. Uh, I think we should do a, you know, this here, and we should, you know, and then over, then the water with over the, the, um, the rocks, and yeah, that's what I would do too. And so, um, it it seemed like, uh, you know, validating back and forth the whole way. So, um, I thought it was it was really good to have him there. Um, he he really knows his stuff. Yeah, so, he was uh, he was knowledgeable, but he wasn't necessarily a a permaculture. Guy like he had no, he had knowledge of natural systems, but not under a permaculture umbrella. So it was cool to see his knowledge being spoken by a non your mouth, agreeing with you, who's coming from a permaculture. So you know he he was doing it the same way. And one other thing I thought was interesting that day that people got out of the workshop was your approach to a project versus you compared it to a Dave Bainline approach where a Dave Bainline or Doug Bullock or somebody would go out and do a lot of mapping analysis and you were like, let's feel the land and go with it and design the plan as we go. 
I yeah, we talked about that on the first day, and I think it really came out on the second day. And yeah, uh, Dave Bainline, he has uh, I think he calls it Terra Phoenix Designs, and and uh, Dave is awesome at maps. And so I've I've had some people come and to ask me to come and consult, which I don't really like to do, but um, they asked me to come, and I and they are like they love the maps. And I say you need you need. Dave Bainline, <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna give you a book back that is full of maps of your property, and and so yeah, when you do a, a map, and this and this kind of is rooted in in my history with software engineering, and that is that there are you know the the old school of thought was that you basically make a map, you you design your software on paper, and and then you say okay now go make it, and the problem with that is is that um, you're going to get a little ways into the project and you're going to realize oh now I learned a thing about what sucks about the design but I can't put it back into the design because our contract says that we're going to make that design so even though the design sucks I guess we're going to do the best job we can of making something sucky um, the other thing is is that a lot of times as you're doing things your needs change or as you're doing things, your stakeholder decides that they want something different. Like they, they thought of something that would be better, but they didn't realize it until they started to see the product come into play, which was exactly what happened on our project. So we started, we, we designed one thing, and we went and we staked it out and with the laser levels and stuff like that. And then Alden said he would rather have something different. And it occurred to him the next day. And it's like, well, we hadn't dug it up yet, so no problem. But um, I, I think that one of the things that I like to do is that when I go out and I start digging, then you start where the water comes in, and you start digging. And along the way, you went and you dug your hole, and then you find out, oh, no, I can't make this pond too terribly deep because there's the the um, cracked bedrock, which we'd never encountered in digging our pond. But, or there's this, or there's this other thing, or whatever. You've discovered something along the way. Change your design. You know, and, and uh, if you're not married to a map, then you can do that. And, and um, I think part of it is, is that shouldn't we try to be more aligned with nature? And in which case, it's like a lot of the, what's going to be natural in the area, we're not going to discover until we're in there digging. And then we discover something, and then it's like we can work with what we find if we're willing to deviate from the map. So, so yeah, um, I, I know that Dave Bainline and I have had a rich conversation about this, and I prefer like lists of things that I want to accomplish as opposed to maps that say, here's what it's going to look like in one year. Here's what it's going to look like in five years. And here's what it's going to look like in 20 years. And then Dave, of course, says that, oh, yeah, you can totally change the map and thus change what you're going to do anytime that you want. But to me, that sounds like a lot of work. That, you know, as opposed to, like, going out and doing it, and then as you're doing it, you have new ideas of what you want to add just willy-nilly as you go along. There you go. And whoever you're working for, right? 
Um, yeah, I mean, Alden was cool with it. I imagine, yeah. I imagine some people are like, I, you know what? And I would even go so far as to say most people would prefer to look at a map first. Right. I want to see the map before you start to dig. And and Alden was like, he's he was totally trusting us to do whatever it is that we wanted to do. But basically, we just walked the property and said, pond, finger, you know, water flow-like or, or, or waterfall-ish thing, uh, and then second pond. And then Alden came back with a change that instead he wanted to have a swale over there. And, uh, and so I was like, no problem. We can totally do that, man. Sweet. So uh, uh, Thursday morning. So on, on Wednesday, it was lots of planning, lots of, of talking, lots of walking around and pointing at stuff, putting stakes in the ground, playing with the laser level, clearing some brush, taking our soil samples, and that kind of thing. Thursday morning, the equipment shows up. Uh, we've got a driver for the track hoe, uh, and uh, there's a loader there, and Jacob's running the loader, um, and we start digging. We start we start building the pond. The pond dam is only something like four and a half, five feet tall. It's not a very tall dam, um, and the pond is like I don't know, seventy-five feet by fifty feet. It's it's not it's it's not really big. It's it's a pretty small pond. Does this sound like about the right size, seventy-five by fifty? You guys think? I would even gener- I would say that's generous. Smaller, Might be smaller, smaller. yeah. Smaller, okay. Um, so, uh, and then we, you know, the build the finger, and, and so, oh, and then we make sure that uh, everybody who wants to have a chance to drive the traco gets a chance to drive the traco for at least three minutes, and some giant guy in overalls was yelling how they suck at it. Oh, making people yeah. cry, Paul. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah. Yeah, you're wasting fuel. That's not enough dirt in the bucket. Oh no, gosh. Please. Yeah, you're. You know, it's so. Uh, yeah. Anyway, everybody. They said everybody said they had a great time doing that, and it was worth the price of the workshop just to get to drive the Traco for a few minutes. Oh well. And and the guy that was the Traco driver was really cool about it. He was. He stood there right with them and told them what to what to do in order to do it. And it looks like everybody had a good time. Um. All right. Uh, we decided that the second pond would be made a lower priority. We weren't going to worry about it. We wanted to make sure that we had a swale um, as well. We were originally going, we, we talked about doing one up high. We actually laser leveled it out up high, like up above the pond, and that it would actually be another way of feeding the pond. Nice. But, but instead, yeah. we did that thing where we made the swale extend from the finger. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's cool. Um, and uh, uh, we let's see. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember what all that we did on Thursday versus Friday. Oh, one of the uh, big things of, we had to do. Well, on Thursday too, there was a lot of clearing of the brush. I think one thing you emphasized was in the dam to make sure to get all the organic matter out of the dam to provide or to stop water from leaching out through that. So that was right. a big thing. And then a lot of sloping at the inlet where the driveway was, the the driveway yeah. had to be recontoured to direct the water in the direction we wanted it to go. 
Right. And so the driveway was super packed. I mean, it's, it was gravel, but it had obviously been driven on for decades, and it was very, very packed. So we had a lot of uh, pickaxe and shovel action going on there to kind of mildly shape the driveway so that when the water came in, it would go into our pond instead of continuing down the driveway. Um, and one of the things we wanted to make sure was, was done is that if people are driving on the road, there's not like a big speed bump on the road. So we, we wanted this to be really subtle. And, um, and I remember there's this gal, Emily, and man, uh, apparently she'd been working like on building trails or something. But she just went at it. I mean, there was this one point in time where there's like uh, 20 people standing around with shovels and pickaxes and a big circle around Emily. And she's just wailing on this road with this pickaxe, just just crushing it. Um, and it. And it was kind of like uh, this, this sight to behold, this woman with this much energy and just crushing it. So um, she did. We were at another workshop just a little bit back, and she came over, and uh, she just she just manhandled everything that day at this other workshop, or just not even a workshop. It was just to like come out and help a little perma blitz at at the neighbor's house, and she was there, her and her um, boyfriend. They whew, they were hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was like so everybody just had to stop to see this woman wailing at the road with a pickaxe, and, and it's, it's it was just something that you I don't know it was it was definitely a Kodak moment, <laughs> and uh, it, it was it was like that is that is a form of athleticism that we were watching. So um, uh, after after we got past our, our stun, then then everybody started kind of chipping in a little bit. But yeah, I think I think we did a good job, kind of getting it so the water would flow into the pond, but that you don't see any kind of speed bump on the road. And I think and one interesting note that came out of that, too, was we were talking about how the water was rushing down the asphalt, and some of it would most likely bypass the property. And somebody made the suggestion, oh, why don't you talk to your neighbors and convince them that it's okay to put a speed bump in? And the speed bump is a stacking function. The neighborhood's safer. It slows down cars on the road so the neighbors like it but you really want the speed bump because it now provides a hard barrier to direct the water onto your property which i thought was a really creative solution that was a good that was a good idea yeah and uh um afterwards like the the uh on saturday after the workshop was the first day of the convergence and they set something up so that that morning that I'm giving a tour to, um, I don't know, it's like, I think there's like 75 people or so that came out for the tour. Um, and uh, there was apparently several government officials that were there, and they were asking questions. And so one of them said something about, you know, well, what if you get too much too much water moving through your system here? And it's kind of like that intake at the driveway will will take in a lot of water for a heavy rain, but if it's like a super heavy rain, like the heaviest that's been in, in 50 years, then it won't take all of that in. Some of it will continue down the path where it's currently going, and but most of it will go into the system. So there's no way to get too much water passing through the system. The driveway 
intake is set up in such a way that that it cannot be maxed out. It'll only take in a certain amount of water. So it can't it can't be overwhelmed. So uh I, I thought I thought that the driveway intake thing that we created was was really smart. Um we made the pond. Uh, uh I think one of the most important things about the pond that we did is is that uh unlike what we saw in Jeff Lawton's video about ponds, where he had a flat top on the dam. I think that, that you're going to create mud puddles there, and and that's going to make your, your dam turn to jello and go downhill to visit the neighbors. We don't want that. This dam had a crown on it, and the crown shape was very natural and organic, not, not a, a, uh, a conventional smooth shape. So um, uh, not only will it repel water and the dam will stay dry and solid, but on top of that, it's, it, it looks irregular and natural. Um, and then, as you said, we made sure we get all the organic matter out of there. So wherever there were trees, we made sure to pull up all the stump and all of the roots, so that way there's no path for water to follow to get out. Um, and then we saved the organic matter to put on top of things later. Um, now, on the first day, we had the dam and the finger pretty well dug and set up. Um, it, was a, it was a good, noble start, and it's like, but we ran out of time. We'll come back the next day, Friday, and finish it. And it rained. And the pond filled. <laughs> so when we came back in the morning, there's a pond that's full and it's like, but the plan was that that was just the beginning of the pond. So the pond was not yet deep enough or wide enough. Um, but you, that's, that's, you know, it's like now it's full of water, <laughs> which is a, which a was good reason. Which cool to see. Yeah, it was cool to see. Well, sure. But um, I was kind of bummed because I'm thinking, like, this is why you generally want to build your ponds in, like, August. You know, because a lot of times when you're building your pond, there might be water flowing through. And it's like, if you've got a lot of water flowing through, then it's like, how do you build a pond while it's simultaneously filling? And, you know, the, the solution to that is that you need to siphon it and try to route some of the water around your pond temporarily, things of that nature. But um, in this particular case, it's like we didn't get a chance to seal the pond, let alone finish expanding the pond to the full size that we wanted. So, um, but Alden was like tickled pink. And he was like, this is awesome. <laughs> so instant pond, one day filled, you know, and uh, I don't, how much rain was there? Was it, was, about an was inch. that an, a about okay. So that, is that a lot for San Diego? Was that like a really heavy rain or was that like, yeah. ah, you uh, know, that was, super heavy for what we would normally see. Cause I think through the whole winter, we might've only had four and a half, five inches of rain. And that was one of them. Okay. It would have been good during the heaviest part to be able to see like, how was the intake doing? Um, I mean, when I went to bed, it was sprinkling. And when I got up in the morning, it was sprinkling. So I thought there would be no big deal. So uh, we got there and the pond was full and it's like, 
Really? <laughs> Where'd all that water come from? So, um, but okay, we're going to make the best of it. It's like the, we're, the material that we're using is very silty. There was there is a little bit of clay, but we've got a lot of silt, and so I'm kind of thinking to myself, yeah, it would have been good to pack it to seal it a little bit, but um, maybe it'll do okay. Now, uh, how long did it take until the water was all gone? A month, I'm guessing. A month. All right. So that might have been some evaporation, but it's probably there's some of it that's that's leaking into Overall. the soil. What's that? No, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was. It's some definitely leached out of it, and I think that's this is a good time to also talk about. You covered the strategy that you'd go at if you had a very low clay content of how you. would go about so, sealing that pond uh, because people did ask that question. Right, right. And and so um, there's a variety of techniques. And I mean, like, you know, there was the whole workshop was talking about how we're going to do a variety of different things. But in this particular case, like, let's say the soil was pretty sandy and we didn't have, a, we didn't have any silt and we had just a little bit of clay. And, and uh, so then one strategy would be to simply take the bucket on the track hoe push it down on a spot so that the tracks on the track hose start to come up and then just pepper the entire bowl with this kind of compression. And and that would probably be enough to seal something where there's a little bit of clay. Um, and then if it's a case of like um, there's even less clay than that, then it's possible that what you're going to do is you're going to put a little bit of water in the pond, then you're going to, to dig a scoop up and jiggle it in your bucket, and then you're going to dump it back down and then do the compaction. And then what happens is is that um, your sand falls to the bottom and your clay um, tends to be more towards the top. And then, um, and then you're going to make a layer of that compacted clay. So now you've got more clay in a concentrated spot. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's the typical, that's going to be the general recipe sealing a pond, and it goes along pretty quickly. You would think that that's going to take too long, but it goes along pretty quickly in, in sealing a pond that way. Um, when the time came to start planting, then um, and we did a little bit of planting, so Joey, you took care of the planting afterwards, yeah, and, right. and there was a lot of stuff that we left behind that we never got around to planting. Um, but uh, uh, when it came to planting, I was pretty emphatic that inside the pond and along the finger, that it's important that we plant only ornamentals and no edibles. However, outside of the pond and beyond the finger, dominantly edibles. I mean, permaculture is a lot about planting edibles. But I was I was concerned that in this area next to the pond and the finger, we're still trying to clean that water. And and if we're collecting heavy metals in this space, then that would mean that whatever plants are there are probably going to take up the heavy metals. And I don't want people to be eating things that are taking up heavy metals or other toxins. So that was the reasoning for that. You guys got, um, the, 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 you guys got the wall of the, the dam planted it looked like right 
Yes, I think there was so. cover, yeah, cover crops put on the, the dam wall on the outside, and then around the outside of the dam, we put in some pioneer species shrubs and trees. Nice. That day. So the, so the cover crop that went on was a blend of buckwheat, cowpea, bird's foot, trefoil, Clover, and then for trees, honey locust, black locust, two types of acacias. So there's a, a variety there. Some of those were more trial species that aren't grown as much in this area. Okay. Um, I'm trying to – I mean, the big thing – the thing that was complicated for me is that it seemed like everything that we did was really obvious. And and so I was having a hard time understanding what value I could possibly bring to this workshop. Oh, stop. Um, well, I mean, it's – it seemed, it seemed like, uh, like, duh, this is how you do it, you know, and, and um, I didn't think there was anything particularly profound that we, we did here. Um, I, I think so overwhelmingly the, the concern was I don't know where to start. A lot of people express the knowledge of, I get analysis paralysis or I'm afraid I'm going to go out and screw something up. I don't know even where to begin the whole process. So that's what it was. I don't think people had trouble visualizing where the pond would be, but it helped them seeing how you work through the process and how the pond itself was dug and constructed that they could say, oh, that really wasn't that hard. I was worrying about nothing but people had psyched themselves out because it's a bit intimidating. If you never have worked with a lot of heavy equipment before and you have a property and you want to put a pond on and you just get out of a PDC, I can understand where somebody comes in they're like, uh, I don't know what to do. How deep should I make it? Can I put it in the right spot? And I think it goes back to one of the things you mentioned in another podcast is it's better to build your four inch telescope before you build the six, you know, do it once you can always amend it later. It's just earth. You're not going to screw it up, and you can just dig it deeper, build up berms, redo dam walls. But that's what people had a problem with. Where do I start, and how do I do it? It's too intimidating, and this, I think, really helped communicate. It shouldn't be that intimidating. It's really easy. Yeah, I think it is. So I'm. I guess the point I was trying to make is that I'm really glad that people were asking questions and I think it was a very interactive group and and it was it was all question driven I I I I I kind of feel like how do you prepare for something like this it seems like there's not very much to say so um uh but yeah we we got right out there we started doing it and um a lot of shovels and pickaxes going and then the big equipment coming through chainsaws to take out some of the the bigger brush, and um, so I'm I'm just I'm just really glad that people were good were were feeling free to ask questions and that's and that's how we convey stuff. But now now I'm thinking back on it and it's three months later and I'm trying to remember like okay so like what were some of the questions that people had like what were some of the things that that um, 
we talked about on 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 how to how to do this, but it was start at the top, and then and then once you're done figuring out where this thing flows, where does it flow from there? And then let's make that next. And uh, and then Alden has new ideas, and let's let's talk about how we're going to figure this one out, and now let's go there. I don't know. It it's it seemed it um, it seemed pretty simple. It seemed pretty basic. Um, I think we, the finger we, was kind of unique. I don't think a lot of people would have came up with a finger on their own designs. Uh, you know, the pond itself. Okay, you can put a pond in, but the finger was the was one unique aspect that I think you brought to it that most people wouldn't have came up with. And then also, you know, moving on to kind of the Hugo culture part on that section, how you wanted to create, you know, a hot spot and a cold spot on that terrace. Oh, right, right. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, Joey, this is something that when we looked at your property, so here it is, we looked at your property, it was September, and it was a hot day, and um, and you had a big swale. It was probably a good five, six feet across and maybe three to four feet deep. Yep. Yeah. And I think that when you're in an area where it gets that warm, having a swale is a smart, smart thing because it, it, it helps to pool cool air. And um, so we did a lot of this where we're talking about, because we started doing a lot of designs where we started thinking about, all right, we, we want to create spots that are cool in the summer, and we want to create other spots that are going to be warm in the winter. Um, and, and so we, we set about with a lot of designs in that space. So we, as the last thing we did, because we started running out of time, and we said, okay, there's two more things we have to do. We need to build a terrace to show what a terrace looks like and how you build a terrace. And then on the terrace, we're going to build a culture bed. And we have a whole bunch of wood ready to go. Um, and the thing is, is that the culture bed, we also decided was going to be a sun scoop. So we made a flat spot that was the terrace, and then we put the culture bed on that. Um, and, and granted, normally when we build a culture bed, you're going to have like maybe four or five different kinds of materials that are going to go into it. So it's going to probably be, you know, dominantly it's going to be soil on wood, but you might also have some hay or some compost or, or some other material that you've got in abundance that will get mixed in there. And we like to clump that. But all we had was wood and soil. So that's, that's what we did. We, we, uh, we laid down some wood and put some soil on it, laid down some wood, put some soil on it, laid down some wood and put some soil on it, and then we ran out of time. And that was the end of Friday. Um, so we had the pond and a finger coming out of the pond. And a finger is basically the same thing as a swale, only it's sealed in the bottom. So it's it, the idea is we're going to carry water. And it might go slightly, ever so slightly downhill. But it'll go very slowly downhill. Um the swale is designed to be perfectly level and to leak. And, and so then that water will pool up in the swale and gradually end up in, in the local soil. Um, 
So we did that, and then we also tried to make it so that there was a little bit of a waterfall-like thing, like a little like splashy, splashy, water going splashy, splashy over rocks into where someday there will be a second pond, a lower pond. And the water going into that pond should be very clean. Um, and then next to that is where we built the terrace and we put on the hugelkultur bed. I think, I think that that was everything. Um, I'm trying to, I mean, for me, I like to build a finger on a pond because a lot of my stuff is I'm thinking about aquaculture. And the pond is going to be the fish habitat, and the finger on the pond is going to be the fish food habitat. Um, but if nothing else, it's like if you're just trying to move water, because originally the plan was let's not let the water escape yet. What we want to do is we want to hold the water and get the water into a pond where people can splash around. Where people, It's a people pond. So, sure, we want to have some water working into the landscape and stuff, but we also want to have a pond where people can can go and, and cool off. And that was the purpose of the second pond. All right, Diego, what am I leaving out? What am I forgetting about here? That's probably good covering it all. Um, they got to see you drive the track hoe, and I believe some people commented on your scooping ability in the track hoe. So they did and, get to and, see that. How is my scooping ability? It's pretty good, I thought. You know, you oh, can operate it so... Absolutely you, you, magnificent. That's good. I you know how to drive a track like out. a pro. Yeah, I know, I know what I'm doing. So I've, I've driven a track a time or two before, and, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted everybody who wanted to dr- spend some time driving it to get a chance, because it is fun. And when you're, when you're thinking about renting a track that, um, you know, granted, if you if you get it with a driver and somebody knows what they're doing, they can probably do it a hell of a lot faster than you. But, um, you know, you can pick it up pretty fast. And the most important thing is it's just cool. It's just fun. So, um, uh, you know, get on there and have some fun. Yeah, it'll be really uh, interesting to see how that, that landscape develops over the next few years as more and more finishing touches are put onto those systems because now a lot more water is going to be going into that landscape. Wait, what, Joey, of... what are you doing? What? Joey? About what? What's that sound? I don't know. I, I guess I touched part of the computer, but I didn't know there was any part of it that did anything. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, Diego, you were saying? I was just saying, as that system goes on and develops, it's going to be really good because we added a lot of biomass into that system with trees and cover crops and edibles, and that's going to bring more water into the landscape. I know Alden's been polishing it off, you know, rounding out some of the hard edges that from the swale. He'll be expanding on those. So it's going to be a really cool system. People can follow updates at the Sky Mountain Institute's website. That's Alden's page. He does a lot of workshops out there. And we'll try and get more updates out there, you know, every six months or a year so people can see how that does change. So um, I, I think I think now is a good time to start moving into, into where Joey took over. I got just one more little note here. Um, we did that little tour after the workshop. And and uh, a bunch of people came out for that, and um, so then they asked about the intake, and then somebody said, 
why not leave it as it was? And um, so this was, I think this was somebody that was from some sort of government office who asked, who asked these questions. They asked these three questions. Uh, they were worried about there being too much water flowing through the system. The second one was, why not leave it as it was? Uh, so why not leave it as it was? Um, and we pointed around the area. You could see where there's a lot of stuff going on where um, it's untouched. No one's, no one's done anything. No one's touched any of it. And um, it's kind of like, okay, so, so obviously whenever you come onto a site where you've recently put in a pond or a culture bed or a terrace, any, any earthworks, it kind of looks a little bit like a construction site or, or like some sort of mining operation or, or something like that. And uh, so it doesn't look good. I mean, the, the seeds have been planted and they haven't done anything yet. And, and so it looks rough. It looks plowed. It looks turned over. Um, and so, you know, the mission of the permaculturist is to try and think in the fourth dimension. Like, what's this going to look like in a year? What's this going to look like in five years? So um, the thing, and, and so no, I know Joy's got a response to this, but my response is, is that it's like when you look out onto the hillside, there is a certain look that is there. And at the same time, I believe that what we were creating on this spot is something that in time will be more lush and vibrant than what's there. There might be 10 times more plant matter actively growing, living plant matter per acre here than up there on the hill or here than what would have been here if we had done nothing. And so I think that what we're doing is we're entering into a romantic relationship with nature and nature is expressing her joy through a great deal of lush. Um, and of course you can't see it at the moment because we just finished planting all of our seeds and stuff and, and putting in this pond and things of that nature. Um, and then that led to the next question is what about, what about the wildlife? I mean, you know, isn't there certain wildlife that, that was here? And, and sure enough, we encountered all kinds of lizards and snakes and different kinds of wildlife in the area that, you know, where, where we dug it up. And my response to that is I think that there's going to now be 10 times more wildlife per acre with the new system than if we had left it untouched. And, 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 and to kind of do the correlation with the romancing of nature, to me, when I looked out onto that hillside, and it's like, that's what nature looks like when she's lonely, when she's all by herself and just doing her own thing. And now nature is in a relationship, and, and we'll, there'll be a lot more. All right, Joey. Yes, sir. Now, what was your answer? You were, what, what is your answer to that question of why not leave it as it was? Well, the, the, the answer I would have for that is if we left it the way it was, that area, that part of the property had been graded. All the vegetation had basically been run over and destroyed, um, except for some, some holdout spots of some, some different sagebrush and uh, oak and um, some different toyones and things like that. But as far as that goes, there, 
the place was beat up and there's houses everywhere around us that just right up from the pond that was built was an asphalt road. So where does, how natural is that asphalt road? So I think if you're, if we're thinking about the asphalt road as natural, then we'd have to think about something that complements that the naturalness of that asphalt road, which would be something that can pacify the water flow off of such such hardscape before it goes down to the creek, which is still in its more natural form, and uh, uh, pacifying that water from the and and like you say, uh, reducing that toxic load through some kind of uh, reducing that turbidity and stuff is is important and that bringing things in that kind of balance, balancing out, it, when we look at nature, when we think about nature, then we think about balance, ideally. So what's the balance to that road? I think this is this is the answer to that balance, is, is the pond, finger, swales, something to, to uh, help restore an area that had been mutilated. Not like the, 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 the hill across the valley, which was too steep for anybody to ever go up and beat the crap out of so they never went over there but they decided to get on this other side of the valley where they could run over it real easy and put houses and farms and things and kind of manhandle it that way so i look at it as the relationship you're talking about that we'll be entering in with nature to uh be it with earth movers and the little surgery type stuff and to uh mend some of the damage that's how i look at it yeah i think uh i think you're right i mean it's it's already i mean i suppose one could say well here's a few acres and we could have just left it alone and let nature do her own thing here the and this few acres sits next to a road and next to um a, a large building and uh you know there's power lines and um, the the gravel road and some fences and things like that. So it's next to these other man-made things. We could say, and now we're going to walk away and leave it alone, which is a path that one could choose. And it's the path that they'd been following for um, decades. And uh, and now we're coming in here and, and uh, theoretically, I, I suppose, we're adding a type of garden. Yeah. All right. So... Um, on Saturday after the tour, is that Joey? Is that when you guys started planting stuff? Yeah, I think after lunchtime we had a we had a hands-on uh, action with the food forest type of planting going on on the 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 end of the finger over the swale part of the area because you guys had done the dam wall and stuff, and then we had a bunch of uh, plants that had come in with some fruit trees and some different plantings that what we had a lot of to work with was Alden is especially fond of natives. So there was a lot of natives to be planted in to this food forest area that was to be, to be made. Um, so we groomed up the area where the earth mover had been and, and had a bunch of people out there with shovels and everything and just trying to work work some of the areas just to fine-tune it up. And then um, 
started planting there and so we were dealing with the with the with the with the plant stock that we had been given we weren't able to stack it with many let's say overstack it with nitrogen fixers so we had a, the our percentages were a little higher on non nitrogen fixing plants still still drought hardy plants cuz they were there were a lot of natives in there um, and we did have some hardy kind of fruit trees that do well in, in our climate and in this little bit of an arid area where the where the earthworks were erected. So um, and we went out and we did it. We put it in there. We did the assembly nice. We put the trees more at the bottom and put the hardier stuff on top for now because the the season. When the when the earthworks were done, our our rainy season had been ending, so um, we were working with that, and uh, the people were excited. We talked about put about just forests in general, about about layers, and and trying to get a good understanding, which was fortunate at, and and great at that site at Alden's places. They own their land, but goes down to the creek. And it's a, it's a, it, the creek runs year round, and uh, there's a full example of of a layered, beautiful layered canopy all the way down to ground cover. So we're able to look at that example, and then migrate up the hill to the earthworks. And what I wanted to do with people was to give them the idea that when we put it, these earthworks go in, our intention and our goal is to create systems that mimic forest conditions if we're looking to build a food forest or a forest in general we're looking at these layers and that some of the trees that are planted in there especially the black locust and the honey locust but black locust especially are fast growers and can get very tall down here in our climate and so they're a great pioneer tree they are a nitrogen fixer so to give people the idea that yes, it's barren right now because we just worked everything, but these systems grow into this system, and then they grow into this system through it through, and we just there's a little bit of time there, but that our that's our intention. That was the example, and that explaining as we planted plants, the different size differentiations that we were looking for, where we're looking for something more close to the ground, we're looking for something in the medium height area, looking for a mid canopy tree and some taller canopy trees so we can get those layers that bring in that diversity of um, of plant matter and then they bring in a diversity of animals because everything likes different layers, whether they're birds or, or lizards or just little animals in general and it gives shade because that's the biggest deal down here is to put up some shade to control evaporation. Um, so we were doing all those types of strategies and just comparing them to the landscape around us because, uh, they ha there's different forest systems and different size ratios. So it was good to show the progression. We could, we could de easily demonstrate that with some of the examples that were on site and, uh, and then what we were looking to do in, in, uh, in working with that water harvesting earthworks that you put in. And that that water is key 
to pioneering these systems on on these degraded slopes and these degraded landscapes is this 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 water harvesting and trying to just get that ingrained in our brains on that that water is life it's, down here it's like it's essential for us to to capture every drop and and you utilize it efficiently efficiently and put it into the ground here and uh put it into a different systems to hold it so we can get a little bit of a longer longer run of it in the summer because we're going to whatever six months of no rain so we got to look at those strategies and uh, plant plants according to that there is irrigation going on that's a that's a personal decision that people have to make whether they want to irrigate or not it's a lot harder to go if you're not going to irrigate um, but you'd have to really do some good design strategies there was some questions that came up in the class about irrigation or in the workshop and just about and about what how people can apply this to their urban there's a lot of urban questions like well how do we get in in food foresting in general is is about urban how they can get this into their smaller suburban homes and these types of things well then uh you just my advice was to just Take the system as you see it with maybe 60 foot trees, just reduce everything in size, but keep your layers if at all possible and keep up that polycultural kind of diversity. Um, but uh, but that these systems, these are the systems, these layering systems are, are that kind of secure forest system that we're looking to, to put together. And, um, and everybody was having fun and we 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 really went at it and uh, it was it was fun. It it seemed to me like one of the one of the weird things that popped up because when I was there last September it's like wow it's hot here and and my past experience with San Diego is is that like really really hot is like eighty two and really really cold is like fifty. And and it's like that's that's like the extent of, of of what it is. But but when I was working a contract down in San Diego, I was really close to the ocean. Yes. Yeah. And and so now we were like looking at properties that were um like like your property is is a, what maybe fifteen twenty miles inland. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. So it's fifteen on a freeway going fifty or going sixty five. You're fifteen minutes to the beach. Just that okay. that difference puts us. And where our, our, at our site, you're looking at this winter, we had in the low 20s, and uh, yeah. we got hit hard. And then and then in the summers, you know, we're talking 100 sometimes. And then at Alden's place, it can get even warmer. But, um, yeah, you, it's a big that, – that, that coastal influence only goes about not very far. So – uh, that was that was part of the thing Alden was telling me, and and I was really shocked to hear this. That and just like w exactly what you just said, it will freeze in the winter time, every winter there will be frost on the ground. Oh yeah, and and it's kind of like, I I just didn't see that one coming. Yeah, so, no, it's amazing. You can have you know twenty five degrees at night, and then the next day it'll be sixty five. Yeah. Yeah. So that was part of our design was like okay we need to, we need to put some systems in place 
to make it so that we can have some spots that will never freeze. And and so uh, when we ran out of time on Friday, um, we were supposed to do a one-hour Q&A, which ended up being more like 20 minutes because we were so out of time. And um, we and so it's like, well, what what's not done yet? What's not finished? And um, so one of the things was is that where the swale starts to turn downhill to feed the little uh, splashy, splashy thing for cleaning the water, that needed to be beefed way up. Did, did you guys did you guys do any digging on that? Did you add to that at all? No, we all we did was right past the spilly, spilly fun place. We we worked that end of it. And then he was going to come back on at some other point in time and and dial that whole area in and work on the on the Hugo culture area. But for our hands on, it was just to do the do the end part. Okay, the, the right. swale and not the finger side. Right. Yeah. So so basically, the I mean, one of the missions was like this. It was at the time two feet tall. It needed to be six feet tall, and one of the reasons for that was is that um, when cold air comes down the hill, we want to keep it away from the hugelkultur area. So the hugelkultur area is designed to be our warmest spot. So we made it a sun trap shape, and then we also angled it where we thought in such a way that we thought this is going to best capture the angle of the sun, like in the first week of February, which would also match up with like the the second or third week of November, um, and and so then it will be um, it'll be optimal sun capture for warmth in the in the winter, and and so hopefully this will end up being a hot spot. But then in the summertime, the sun's going to pretty much over, and the angle is going to make it so that it ends up being cooler in the summertime. So it won't be too hot in the summertime. Um, in the meantime, uh, the swale is going to capture the cold air and help keep it cool. And the backside of the hookah culture is going to be away from the sun more. So that will also stay relatively cool. So we've added texture to the landscape. There's going to be cool spots and warm spots. Well, there, there you go. That's what we're doing like when you were talking earlier about the swale bottom. So at our place, right this year, we planted it to a lot of lettuce. So I'm going to see how much longer it takes for the lettuce to bolt in the bottom of the swale versus the versus just the regular garden. that does. They both don't have shade per se. They're not shaded, but... The, that lettuce bolting is a good sign of how much cooler the lettuce is, you know, will stay. So we'll see in that bottom of the swale at our place if uh, if we get a little more length out of that from the coolness. So so just to be clear, just to you know, tell the pod people that if it bolts, that's a sign that it was too hot. Yeah. And then and so then if you grow your lettuce in the bottom of the swale, in theory, that's going to be cooler. And then it won't bolt, but then in the other spot, it will bolt. That's what we're going to see. Yeah, okay, all right. Now, one of the things you said is that we planted towards the end of the rainy season, and and so then 
what the corollary to that is, is that after we planted things, there was pretty much no rain up to this point in time, and there probably will be no more rain until November. That's right. We we did get yeah. one storm, though, that maybe three weeks ago that was a pretty decent rain. That's true. Unusually late. I wonder if it filled the pond again. I don't know offhand, but I want to say we got about an inch again. So I, I like the idea that come August that uh, a track hoe goes back into that pond and expands it and seals it, and then also seals the finger. Because we didn't get a chance to seal the finger either. We just barely got done digging it out when the rain hit. Um, so that would be that would be lovely. Now, um, there's uh, um, some other criteria that that were were being um, uh, that we were shooting for when when doing this stuff. Um, let's see. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember. We wanted to keep it cold and hot. I think we cut that covered. Oh, another one is is that in hindsight, I kind of think it would have been great to have possibly added some berms in some places. I didn't when we were there, I don't recall there being much in the way of wind, but it does seem like where we have water on the surface, it's always a good time to um try and have significant hugelkultur beds um or um, maybe berms much taller than hugelkultur beds to kind of make it so that if any wind is in the area that we will slow it way down. Therefore, we're going to the water that's on the surface will just increase the morning dew in the area, thus reducing the need for any kind of irrigation. Now, with the fact that it's going to be so dry through the summer, I think it, I think that what that means is a lot of the stuff that we planted might not take. Only only the stuff that is the most durable might stick around. Just depends on how much he waters it. Oh, so is is he watering it? Is he going out there and irrigating? He he was at some point when I talked to him. I don't know how much I know he was. And okay. and that would be nice of him too, since a lot of that some of the plant material was donated. I wanted to kill it all. So it was a, now, it was a more informal watering system of you know, drop and place sprinklers versus a long term like drip or piped in system. Right. Okay. So um normally in order to be able to plant something that doesn't need any irrigation, it sounds like you guys are saying that in your area down there you typically plant stuff in November and then it will be kept moist through March. And and then it it'll be able to get good and established before the dry season hits. That's if we're yeah if we're talking about like you're because you're going in there with drought hardy like pioneering species plants to get that shade up. If you didn't want to irrigate, then you would yes you'd go in it in November with your super hardy stuff, and hopefully it would be young in the pot so that what is left of the tap root will actually grow down and go searching for more water uh, versus, I mean, ideally it'd be some seeds in these situations, but you're going to be planting hardy uh, drought tolerant pioneering species. If you're going to go with the no irrigation method, because one, yeah, 
I've done some different trials with some different plants, and uh, you're not planting fruit trees unless maybe it's a pomegranate or a fig or something, maybe a mulberry uh, in in that kind of system with no irrigation. Right. And and usually, you know, you're buying if you're buying a mulberry or any of those trees from a nursery and you're going to plant them in that kind of no irrigation system, the root system is pretty much destroyed in the container for trying to adapt to no irrigation kind of system, uh, you know, throughout the dry season. So I, I know that at some point in time we had somebody working on making, on, on taking some of the brush that we'd cleared and cutting it up in such a way that we were going to be able to use it as uh, stakes to pin down rough mulch. Uh, in areas that were steep, but I'm not sure if we ever got around to actually doing that. They got cut, but they never got used. Okay, but that seems like another component is is that we could have added a lot of mulch, including rough mulch, and that would have provided some layers of shade, and and probably would have helped a lot of these plants get established and continue on without irrigation. Yeah, you're, if you would have if if the earthworks would have been if there would have been mulch on site good good mulch to put right on after well we had we had a whole lot of um brush that we cleared out and we had it all piled up and basically we could have um done lop and scatter we could have cut we could have uh taken some of it to make the pegs and some of it we could have just cut into pieces that are like a foot long or two feet long enough to to basically be a mulch although you know not as high a grade of mulch as like compost or hay, but it, it would have sufficed. It would have helped. Oh yeah. And and so we could have we could have put a bunch of that down. Um, there's I, I I in hindsight I think that uh, uh, I would have liked to have seen some berms added to slow slow down the wind. I, I would have liked to have seen a layer of mulch and everything. I think it would have been great to have uh, done. Um, a lot of this, uh, perhaps in August when it's it's hot and dry, so that way we can finish the pond before the water comes in. And then maybe the thing to have done would have been like when November rolls around, then seed it um, and and mulch it and things of that nature. Just just a hindsight kind of thought. Yeah, you could go that route if you needed to do it in August. I mean. You could do it sooner. I mean, you could do it later in the season the right, than August, but that's and now you're thinking you were working out there in August. That's the hottest time of the season. Yeah, would have been miserable. Oh, you would have been sweating in your overalls for sure. You probably would have had to take them off. <laughs> that would have been building ponds naked. That's right. That, that could be a whole okay. different video. Okay. So, uh, oh, and, and which, by the way, uh, for the whole event, for all of the, uh, the Earthworks workshop, there was a guy and sometimes two guys um, videoing everything, and I was wired up with a microphone. Um, so it, it sounds like someday there could be a video that comes of this. Yeah. So... Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe when we watch the video, it'll make it'll make more sense. I I feel like I'm making a sucky podcast here because I can't remember all the questions that came up and what I had to what I said. Um, but I, I I like to think also 
that for all of the students, when we got done with the workshop, that they all felt like, oh, yeah, that was pretty obvious. That was pretty simple. We didn't, there wasn't anything too terribly profound here. No. Diego, is, is that your feeling on this? I think so. I think the other key thing is, you know, if you're going to get an operator, having a operator of the equipment that knows what they're doing helps a lot. You know, that takes a lot of the earth sculpting out of your hands and puts it into their hands. So, again, I go back to the big worry I think a lot of these people had was, I don't know where to start. And they saw the whole process happened and realized, hey... You know, I can go do this now. And I think, you know, this wasn't the ideal time of year, but this is the rough cut. It can be polished over this summer. And then going into next season, he'll be in, or next spring season in the fall, he'll be in really good shape to start getting this system advancing more. All right. All right. Okay, fellas, got anything else here? All right. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about earthworks, homesteading, and permaculture all the time.